what we're going to do is go, we're going to show up with about 30,000 people. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Tonight, my co-host D and I, we are on top of a liquor store in downtown Los Angeles, and we are broadcasting and podcasting tonight from that location. Okay, Jason, you got, you got to wrap it up, man. The cops are coming up here. We're shutting the location down. They're, they're, they're trying to shut us down, man. They're trying to shut us down. They're going to shut us down. Okay, let's go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are nearing year's end with a fantastic comparison of U2's Joshua Tree versus Prince Sign of the Times two amazing albums that we just lucked into deciding to compare they both came out in 1987 they both are from march of that year they both were up for album of the year i mean these two are some of the biggest hitters of both of these bands careers and all of the 80s and all of music history really and there was an actual rivalry between prince and you too so we know Prince is a competitive guy. When he met with Michael Jackson about singing on the Bad Album, flashback to our Michael Jackson episode, Prince sat cross-armed and was intensely competitive with Michael Jackson. Okay, Don't forget the ping pong games and the basketball games either. I mean, he would beat <laughs> him in any way possible. That's exactly right. King of pop, my rear, right, Prince? <laughs> Your butt is mine. Whoa, whoa, what? What'd you just say? <laughs> You may be the king of pop, but I'm the king of ping pong. <laughs> Prince's reaction upon hearing you two, he said, do you know what I would do if I had a voice like that? Become a janitor. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, at some point, Prince compared these albums and compared himself to you two. He says the difference between me and them is I could play every single one of their songs and they couldn't even play Housequake. That's right. Interestingly enough, I guess they softened over the years, though because while touring Dublin, Prince invited Bono to come on stage and you can actually YouTube Bono singing Prince's version of The Cross. Both Prince and most of you too have strong Christian backgrounds and that comes into play in a huge part in their music. Well, last week, if you missed it, we talked about Prince's Sign of the Times album. We walked through the lineup of songs on that one. Today, we're gonna walk through the 1987 album, The Joshua Tree. And at the end of this, we'll give final judgment on which one we think is the better album. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting how one, you know, Prince has conquered rock and roll and is starting to move away from it, whereas U2 is finding those roots and moving even more towards it from the punk scene. It's it's kind of interesting. I'm anxious to dive in with the history of U2 and start comparing songs. Let's do this. Okay, let's jump in. So... Where does U2 begin? Uh, I think you have to begin with Bono, right? Sure. Yeah. So Bono, his parents, now this is in Ireland in the 60s. His mother was a Protestant. His father was a Roman Catholic. And I can see how that would, as a youth, having parents of differing denominations uh, could be a a really hard thing to deal with in 1960s and early 70s Ireland. I mean, these it was the basis for war. For I mean, it was war. the basis That's for right. war, right? And so they had decided early on that they were going to raise their first child, take him to the Protestant 
church. And that was, of course, Bono's older brother. And then the second child they would raise in the Catholic tradition. And by the time Bono came along and grew up, he had no interest in going to the Catholic church. He ended up going to the Protestant church with his mother and brother growing up. But with the trouble that came along with that position he had in life, he kind of got disinterested in school, would just not go to school to avoid the trouble of it. And then uh, very sadly in 1974, his grandfather passed away, his mother's father passed away. And then while at the funeral, his mother suffers an aneurysm and then she dies two days later. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I cannot express to you how devastating it is. I lost my mom when I was 13 years old. It changes your perspective on life. And obviously he had already had some turmoil in his life and then this this happens to him. And fortunately, God looked with favor upon him. And just shortly after this, a new school opened called the Mount Temple uh, Comprehensive School, which was non-denominational and had as co-ed and a mix of students is really quite a good school. Right. And so he ends up going to school there. And in 1976, he sees a posting that a fellow student has done saying, hey, I want to start a band. And that fellow student was Larry Mullen Jr., who was a couple years younger than Bono. He had noticed him in the hallways. They hadn't really been close, but Bono says, hey, that sounds good. I'd, I'd like to be in a rock band. So uh, he shows up with a few other guys to Larry Mullen's house. They have their first rehearsal in his kitchen. And <laughs> among the guys that show up, you've got David Evans, who would later become The Edge. And of course, Bono at that time was still known as Paul Hewson. And then you had uh, The Edge's brother, Dick Evans, who was also playing guitar. And then Adam Clayton, who was a friend of the Evans's, came in and really didn't know how to play bass guitar, but had talked a really good game and talked about fretboards and music production right. and stuff like that. So they thought he was a cool enough guy to be in the band. And then there were a couple of, well, for lack of a better term, a couple of Mark Stones <laughs> among <laughs> the guys that showed up as well. There's a guy named Ivan McCormick and a guy named Peter Martin who were friends of Larry's, but they ultimately didn't last with the band. And Dick Evans, who was the older brother, you know, I can see this playing out. Uh, I'm 18. You guys are 15. I'm out of here. I'm going to go chase chicks while you guys fart around with your instruments. Right. Oh, you guys became you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on that first rehearsal, Larry said, I thought this was going to be the Larry Mullen band for about 10 minutes until Bono walked in and blew away any chance I had of being in charge. Yeah. I heard him say that he has been relegated to uh, hiding behind the drums for the rest of his life. <laughs> and that's an interesting dynamic. You know, both Adam and Larry have a great role in the band, but it is much more a foundational role. It is, like you said, they they stand in the background and they hold the band up, right? You right. know, that's, that's, that's their job. They're not out there to, to put on some spectacular show. They are there to provide that rhythm section for The Edge and Bono. By the time they get rolling and they're actually, people are starting to listen to them with the consideration of managing or recording or signing these guys, 
Adam and Larry still don't really know how to play their instruments very well. <laughs> the Edge. And by the way, you know, the, they got these names, Bono and The Edge. They got these names after a list of nicknames. I'm sure you guys did it in high school, too. You People just got nicknames sometimes. And usually it was, you know, pointing out whatever the person was most insecure about and making that their nickname. <laughs> and so... Bono had it had to do with where he lived and so did the edge, but then the edge ultimately got his because of how pointy his chin is. That's why yes. he's called the edge. So the edge knows how to play the guitar by the time people are listening. He's he is an accomplished musician. He has got his own technique. And Bono, he doesn't have an amazing voice, but he has a voice that you just kind of want to listen to, right? It's not like you're amazed by the beauty of his voice. But the style of his singing and, of course, his lyrics draw you in. What he does with his voice is he portrays emotion better than most singers that I can think of. Absolutely. When he leans into it, it makes me want to weep. It is powerful. It's from the heart. Yeah. It is. It's it truly is. from the heart. And he's, he said that very early on in the experience... He developed a messiah complex and probably was very difficult to deal with. But just the idea that he might be able to have influence over the world from this thing that he loved more than anything else just got his juices flowing. I mean, it made him an incredible front man. You watch old videos of this, you know, and we talked about how the band would freak out whenever uh, Eddie Vedder would start climbing on the rafters. Well, Bono was doing that over a decade beforehand, right? right? He was That's jumping right. into the crowd a decade before Kurt Cobain ever thought about it. He was <laughs> punk rock. They listened to the jam. I think Bono said his first show was The Clash. They listened to the Buds, Cox, and the Sex Pistols. And Bono had, he would listen to Bowie and Dylan and Leonard Cohen, and he also liked Mark Boland from T-Rex. They realized, hey, you know, punk rock is really at the forefront right now, especially here in Ireland. And it turns out you don't have to be a good musician in order to play punk rock. So they and the police were on the same page with that, right? <laughs> Hey, before you get too far, I was just going to mention, when they first got together, they called themselves Feedback. Yes. As the, that was the name of their band, yep. Feedback, because that's what their rehearsals sounded like the entire time. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, D. Just like Nikki Six, flashback to our Motley Crue episode, the fact that these guys can't play their instruments does not slow them down from being rock stars. Right. It's a passion, for sure. I mean, you know, like with Def Leppard, they realized early on that Joe Elliott didn't have the best voice, but he had that passion. And that passion right. means a whole lot, right? That's right. I mean, I can remember when I got together with a band for the first time, it was a guy that I knew pretty well, but in the hallway just went, hey, I heard you're playing guitar. And at that point, I had maybe been playing for two years. I didn't know crap. I was terrible, <laughs> right? And I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. He goes, I was thinking about putting a band together. You want to meet up? And I was like, sure, because, yeah. hey, being in a band sounds cool, right? Nobody at 14, 15, 16 years old is thinking, I want to change the world with my music. They, right. <laughs> they're thinking, it'd be really cool to be in a band. You probably get some chicks that way. <laughs> so these guys, when they very first got together... They had this passion. They did not, unlike a lot of bands, they did not cover a bunch of songs by other artists. And they said it wasn't because they thought they were better than the artist. It was because they weren't good enough yet 
<laughs> to be able to cover those artists, right? So they, in doing their own stuff, they really developed their own style. So they're playing all these original tunes and this TV guy from a show called Young Line, he's looking for artists to put on his show. And he hears that this, you know, these young teenage boys are doing original songs. They know he's coming over and they've, they've got basically one original, maybe two original songs that they know. And they're in the kitchen again, arguing about how they're going to do the song. You know, they can't decide who's going to start with the music and they've got this big argument. And then there's the knock at the door and the guy comes in and he's like, so here you boys are playing original songs. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we are. And he goes, uh, can I hear one? And he says, sure. Here's an original song of ours called Glad to See You Go, which is a Ramon song. It's not YouTube song <laughs> at all. And so they play him this Ramon song and he's like, Oh, so that's your song, huh? And they're like, Yep, that's us. <laughs> and they get on TV with it, right? They get on TV. They and when they get on TV, they actually play their own original song, but it was it was a Ramon song that got them their first TV gig, which may be the reason that they later wrote a song called The Miracle of Joy Ramon. We have a great song that you might like to hear. It's called Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, they were called Feedback initially. They then changed their name to The Hype. And as The Hype, they were playing around, doing some gigs, getting in front of people. But in March of 1978, Larry spotted an ad for a talent contest. And there was like CBS Music was involved in it, a small cash reward for this thing. When and so they entered pounds. 500 pounds. Thank you. Yes. 500 pounds. When so they entered and thought, hey, you know, great exposure, whatever. They were shocked and surprised when they actually won the talent contest. Yeah. And so by that time, they had scored themselves a manager. His name is Paul McGinnis. And they realized that one of the things that they liked best about him was that he got them beer. <laughs> chicks and beer. Beer and chicks. Yes. So Paul McGinnis had been involved in, I believe it was Irish movies and had decided to get involved in the music scene and so he's excited about U2. They're one of the first bands that he manages but he ends up with several and after this talent competition he goes to meet with this guy named Chaz DeWaley and he's got this suitcase full of tapes for all these bands and he pulls out the U2 tape and says hey these guys just won the CBS talent competition that might be a good band for you to go check out and so Chaz DeWaley's listens to his tape he's like okay these guys are not bad I'll go see them play and so he travels up to a bar to watch them play and he says I walk in and the bar is only half full because half of their fan base was too young to come in <laughs> and he said the band was good about a standard band for the day you know it was exactly what he would expect but he said Bono was mesmerizing he said he performed like a Shakespearean tragedy and the yeah. Whaley says when I was in university I had seen a young actor portraying Hamlet in Shakespeare and that actor was Ian McKellen so that's pretty cool he said when he saw wow. Bono on stage it was though Bono embodied those same dramatic techniques that Ian McKellen had used when he was performing Shakespeare I was like wow I mean yeah how do you not sign that band so Chaz DeWaley ends up being the guy 
guy that produces their first press records. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, Chaz Dwayley said that, you know, as they were, as he was trying to record that first album, he was kind of a jerk to him, specifically to Larry Mullen, because Larry Mullen at that point still couldn't keep rhythm. He couldn't keep <laughs> a steady beat. And so he'd go, nope, that was terrible. Do it again. Okay, you're terrible. Do it again. And so he could... He said, I understood why Larry would have been rather mad at me. He goes, I didn't even realize it until I read the book years later, but apparently Bono was so seething mad at me that he was just shy of punching me out, which I got to say, I probably deserved the way I acted, but I had no idea. He contained it very well. Wow. So you got a list for us of, of albums for you two. Okay, so just covering the chronology of you two. So they had an album in 1979 called Three. This is known as their debut. It was released in Ireland, but not not an international release. Then in 1980, they had the album Boy. Yep. And then in 1981, they had October. The hits of that fire and gloria october is kind of known as their christian album as much as you any u2 album as a christian album in the interim as they're soaring up their fame ladder they start going to a charismatic church the four of them and three of them everybody except for adam are enticed and become born-again christians and this is a huge moment in the life of the band because they all become very strong in their faith. Adam is this 21-year-old guy who wants to live the rock star lifestyle. And right. so it's these things are at odds, you know, obviously. And so he's wanting to use the back of the bus for one reason, and they're wanting to use it for a place to do a Bible study. So right. it becomes very tricky, and they almost broke up. A lot of their born-again Christian friends were saying, you can't lead a Christian lifestyle and be a rock and roll band. You have to give this up. You have to make the sacrifice. And it's a little scary, especially for Adam, who's just thinking, wow, you know, we've come all this way. And suddenly these guys are just going to leave me. And ultimately, one by one, Bono decides, you know what? I, I'm not listening to these guys. I'm not going to give up my band. I can be a Christian and a rock and roll star. Right. And then Larry follows suit. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that either. And The Edge is the one that's holding out. And I mean, The Edge really is the sound of it. the band. I mean, it's, yeah. it's that's a huge, huge thing. Yep. And so at some point, Bono says, hey, let's go for a walk. And The Edge says he fully expected... Bono to say, stay in the band, don't leave us. But what Bono said instead was, you have to follow your heart. You have to do what is right for you. And whatever you do, I will support you in it. And that was what caused him to stay with the band. That's a great story. And, you know, the idea that you cannot be a Christian and be in a rock band, I think has been somewhat dispelled because of the amount of good that this band has done internationally. Say what you will about, I mean, I remember hearing the joke way back when of, you know, the guy dies and goes to rock and roll heaven and he's like, oh, look, there's Elvis. He really was dead. And oh, look, there's Jim Morrison. He really was dead. And he's like, wait a minute. Is that Bono? I didn't even know Bono was dead. <laughs> and the other guy goes, oh, no, that's God. He just thinks he's Bono. <laughs> but, but for a guy who has done the philanthropic work yeah he has done i mean he's he is a guy who backs up what he says with what he does when they finished with live aid 
everybody else went back home or went and had a party or went on tour and he and his wife went to Ethiopia that's right to work with the starving people in Ethiopia. that's right that's, and that's yeah freaking awesome so October was their quote unquote Christian album uh-huh. and they weren't preaching they weren't telling people how to live they were talking about what their faith meant to them and I think because of that, it was an album that everybody could welcome. They didn't see it as hypocritical or anything like that. It was an album that increased their fame, increased their popularity instead of taking away from it. Okay. After October in 1981, they come out with the album called War in 1983. Right. Which has a picture again of that little boy that was on Boy. And he looks a little angrier and a little bit more beat up on War. That's right. Songs off this one that you may know, New Year's Day, definitely Sunday, Bloody Sunday. That was the first time oh, the I remember hearing you two was, was seeing that video on MTV of Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Huge hit. There was an album released at the end of 1983. It's a live album. It's called Under a Blood Red Sky. Yeah. But really, the unforgettable fire in 1984 was what really made them rock heroes. Hits off this album, Pride in the Name of Love one of their signature songs. They have a song called The Unforgettable Fire. And then the song Bad, that if you've ever seen their performance of Bad at Live Aid in 1985, which again, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, it is amazing. Right. Yeah, you you mentioned Pride. I got a bit of a story on that one. So they have played Pride more often than they've played any other song. And it's a song about Martin Luther King, right? Yep. And so when they were on tour with Joshua Tree, right, the album that we're discussing today, when they were on tour with that, they had been campaigning for Martin Luther King Day as a holiday in Arizona. Just a quick bit of history there. Ronald Reagan had made Martin Luther King Jr. Day a day to be honored. People get off work. It was a national holiday. Uh-huh. And Arizona's governor had followed suit and said, yes, this is going to be Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But then another governor got elected and he changed the day from a Monday to a Sunday so that nobody was getting off of work. It was this uh-huh. time. That it, and so there was this big petition in Arizona to say, hey, no, this needs to be on the Monday that we said it was going to be on. And it was a pretty heated thing. So when they come through on their Joshua Tree tour, they're getting death threats from some people in Arizona because they've campaigned for the Martin Luther King Day. And the FBI comes to them and says, hey, you know, I don't want, we're not going to tell you guys not to do the show, but we would really encourage you not to do pride in the name of love because there have been people who said you will be assassinated if you do this song. And so Bono said, Okay, well, we're not going to be intimidated by that. We will do it. And if it happens, it happens. And so in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the set, they're going to do that song and they start singing the song. And there's this line where very explicitly, you know, April 4, talking about the bullets ringing out in Memphis. And he knows, hey, if I was going to assassinate me, I would do it when I'm singing this, these lyrics. So at this point, he kneels down you know, in, in almost like a execution style pose, ready for whatever is about to come. And 
just as he's doing that, he sings the lyrics. Nothing seems to happen. He looks up, and Adam is standing in front of him, chest out, chin out, ready to take whatever bullets are going to come Bono's way. That is awesome. You gotta love that. You gotta love that. That is amazing. couple things I want to mention to you, D, before we move on from Unforgettable Fire. Prior to this, in 1983, U2 performed at the... Us Festival. Festival. Of course, because every band we talk about <laughs> performs at the Us Festival. Isn't that a crazy coincidence, right? It, it's crazy. In excess, the police... Not only can Steve Wozniak make some dang good computers, he can pick <laughs> some dang good bands to be in his show, I'll tell you. Van Halen, U2... Motley and- Crue... Motley Crue. I mean, what kind of awesome concert would that have been? Right. Okay. There's something I want to talk about in particular regarding the Unforgettable Fire. Okay, Okay, go for it. Yeah. All right. On July 13th, 1985, U2 was involved in the Live Aid concert at Wembley Stadium. Okay. Yeah. Live Aid, if you don't remember, that was to to support and help with the Ethiopian famine, which was a huge thing in the 80s. Um, And while they were there... U2's on stage. They're kind of the up-and-coming band, right? Right. Not, not the big boys quite yet. They're singing the song Bad off the Unforgettable Fire album. And Bono notices in the front row there's a girl who's getting crushed. Yep. And he starts to gesture to the, to the ushers, and they don't understand what he's saying. And I think it's really cool. It's in the middle of this song, and his bandmates just continue to play, right? Yeah. yeah. He stops singing. He's gesturing to this girl. She's hurt she's getting crushed he jumps like 15 feet down from the stage goes over pulls her out of the crowd and is like hugging her and like almost like a slow dance with her yeah um she was there to see wham which i thought was (laughs) kind of interesting right she may not even know who these guys are Uh he pulls her out of the crowd slow dances with her and and sort of saves her years later she she comes out and says listen if he hadn't pulled me out, I'd have been crushed to death. And that performance of that song, if you if you can watch it on YouTube, it'll blow you away. And that that performance resonated with people, and they saw how Bono connected with audiences. And a week later, all of their albums are in the charts. Even when they were doing small shows, he had this vision of breaking through the fourth wall. Like he never wanted to be a distant player from his audience. He wanted to end up in his audience's lap, which is why he was, you know, he was stage diving back in the early eighties and climbing the rafters and jumping into the crowd because he wanted to develop a deeper, closer connection with the audience members. Right. Right. And so you're talking about, you know, this girl who was there for wham who he saves and slow dances with and consoles her through this process. You two did a Joshua Tree concert three years ago. It was 30 years, you know, 30 years later. Right. They redo the Joshua Tree tour, right? Right. She comes to the show. <laughs> that is how you know you made an impact on somebody's life. Yeah. You talk about how that was a pivotal moment. By 86, 
They are headlining the Amnesty International Conspiracy of Hope Tour. They have been named by Rolling Stone as the band of the 80s. I mean, they have gone from up and coming to the band of the 80s. And so in 1986, they headline this tour. The last show of the tour is at Giant Stadium. And for that show, it's being broadcast live on MTV. And who should come in for a reunion after not having played together for three years? The band we talked about as the band, The Police, Mm -hmm. come in and do... This is their last show of the 80s until they get together, I mean, 20-something years later. Right, right. This is their last show for a long, long time. Last show, as far as anybody can tell. They do this reunion set. When they get done with their set, U2 comes on stage. They hand their instrument a passing of the torch to say, we were the band of the decade, and now you are the band of the decade. That is an amazing story. So that leads us to 1987 and the release of Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree comes about because in their touring of The Unforgettable Fire, they tour America, right? And so they're on a tour bus moving through the U.S., and they see the parched desert as it comes up later on in the lyrics of the U.S., and they have this idea of the mythical America. You know, there's the idealistic America that we maybe even don't appreciate as much since we're from here. Right. Um, But it's this kind of notion of land of the free, home of the brave, this genuine idealistic idea. And that is the inspiration for what will become the Joshua Tree. So that's why on the cover of the album, they have themselves standing in front of a large desert and why the album is named after Joshua Tree, which is a desert park in California. I'd love to go there sometime. I think that's really... I've been there. Have you? Yeah, I've climbed rocks in Joshua Tree. It's it's It was a long, a long time ago. long <laughs> More than half a life ago. But, was yeah. that uh, when you saw movies for the first time? Not that long ago. No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, there was, it was more like first experiences with drugs as opposed to boobies. But uh, yeah, I was... Oh, nice. Went, went out there finding myself... Still haven't found what I'm looking for. (laughs) (laughs) So they've got this idea of the mythic America and they start talking to guys. They start meeting with musicians who have this rock and roll history. You know, I talked before about how they have come from a post-punk or punk rock history and that was kind of their sound and With The Unforgettable Fire, they kind of moved in this sort of experimental, ambient music type of thing. And once they started meeting with guys like Bob Dylan and Keith Richards and some of these other guys, they realized that all of these guys had listened to traditional American music and that they had been, because of their punk history, had been kind of apathetic for any kind of tradition. And right. so they start studying these old bands and they start to become interested in this 
folk tradition. They start listening to blues. They start listening to country and honky tonk. They become huge fans of Johnny Cash, which you'll see them. It's a pretty famous photograph of them for the Rattle and Hum movie that came out where they've got a picture of Johnny Cash up. But they they start adopting this kind of American traditional sound, but then also blending that with the Irish music that kind of the indigenous Irish music. Um, and so it gives them this, I mean, they are, they're already unique. They already have their own sound, but it really gives them a framework to build upon. And the edge was kind of against it initially, but he started listening to guys like Robert Johnson, who's an old blues guy. You, he, one of the main historical references in Crossroads with Ralph Macchio. Oh, nice. Okay. I bought the I bought the Robert Johnson tape after seeing that movie. I was not as impressed as The Edge was, but you know, it's that's probably <laughs> because I was stupid. That's that's not any reflection on Robert Johnson. But he listens to Robert Johnson, Howlin' Wolf, Hank Williams Sr., Lefty Frizzell, all of these guys that are getting played on public radio stations, and he becomes inspired by this. And so these guys, they're always against kind of whatever is popular at the time. You know, Duran Duran is popular at the time, but they're doing stuff with synthesizers. They've got very modern clothes. And U2 was trying to go the other direction from that, which is why you've got almost no synthesizers at all. I mean, it's, it's really like a spice in their songs as opposed to a major facet like Duran Duran or like Prince in right. Sign of the Times, right? Sure. So they start their recording. They, were, they did almost all of their recording in two different houses. They thought, we want to feel like we're a family, like we're living together. And so they decided to go to a house uh-huh. to record their music. And they, uh-huh. you know, they set up the drums in the dining room. And then I don't think they even called it the sound room. They just had a different name for everything was the living room. But it the, really created The sound room a- was called the lyrics room. Yes, there you go. Thank you. They called it the Mill Beach House and the Danesmoat House. Danesmoat, yep. But they rented it from this guy. And <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, hey, we, we're a rock band. We want to rent your house. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> go for it. Thank you. Come again. Um, <laughs> Bono is changing the way that he's writing music now. He said, I used to think that writing words was old fashioned. So I sketched, I wrote words on the microphone for the Joshua tree. I felt the time had come to write words that meant something out of my experience. And I have to think that his meeting with Bob Dylan and some of those other guys that we talked about before had to have had a huge impact on that. He describes his talk with Bob Dylan in a biblical way. He refers to it as almost a bestowing of a blessing, sort of like the laying on of hands like Abraham did to Isaac when he met with Bob Dylan. It was like so moving to meet with someone who he had idolized and then adopt and learn from his techniques. Bob Dylan, sort of another spiritual Christian rock star, sort of a brother in that in that same spiritual area yeah all right so before we move into the album one quick story (laughs) 
to kind of be the flip side of that whole Christian thing. So in these houses, <laughs> in these houses that they were living in, they had wild magic mushrooms growing out in like the field. <laughs> and uh, the edge said that one night he goes to this party at the place that Adam is staying at. And these guys at the party offer him some magic mushrooms. And he's like, well, I've never really done that before, but uh, okay. It'll be kind of like a, you know, a, a mind expansion experiment. Let's give it a right. shot, you know? Right. So he takes a dose of magic mushrooms and then, you know, after 40 minutes, he doesn't feel anything. So he does the rule one wrong thing to do. He doesn't wait. He takes more. He doubles down exactly. on the magic mushrooms. And then when he doesn't feel something immediately, he triples down. He triples <laughs> down on the magic mushrooms. And he said, and then I broke rule number two, which is don't be in the dark. I went home and I went to bed. And then all of a sudden I'm <laughs> laying in bed in pitch black, but I'm watching a fireworks show that isn't actually happening. <laughs> and he says, after quite some time of doing this, I start to ask the big questions of life, you know, asking what the, you know, the secrets, the deep secrets of life are. <laughs> and, and he says, and I figured it out. I figured out what the secrets of the universe were. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm not going to remember this in the morning. I've got I've to I've get these down on tape. And so he goes to get his tape recorder, which is across the room. And it only takes him about 25 minutes to crawl there. <laughs> and he gets it back to his bed and he turns it on and he says, and then I was captivated by that little red light for about another 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I start describing all of the secrets of the universe. And then, you know, I wake up the next morning. It's not until probably eight at night the next day that I went, oh, wait a minute. I recorded all the secrets to the universe. And he says, so I go back and, you know, the tape has, it still has record down. So the batteries are completely dead. I go find replacement batteries. I put those in, I push play. And all I can hear is, and so, like, whatever it was he had said, he talked into the battery end of the recorder instead of the microphone. And so, all the secrets of the universe were lost. Oh, tragic, <laughs> tragic. If only we could have had those recordings, how much further ahead would we be in society? <laughs> all right. And with that, I say we jump into the album. Let's jump into the album. Next week. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> Sorry, to be continued. Let's talk about next week real quick. Yeah, next week, tune in and we will have the full track-by-track track analysis of Joshua Tree followed by our final judgment. We'll see you next time. All right, good night. Good night.